I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. Baselayer is sponsored by Diginex and by its digital asset exchange, Equas. As an exchange, Equas is focused on delivering innovative product compliance, fairness, and most importantly, trust. In a time when institutional investors are beginning to seriously review digital assets for their portfolio, these are key elements necessary to build bridges to new investors. Equas currently provides digital asset spot trading and perpetual futures, and plans to soon offer dated futures and options. Parent company Diginex also provides capital markets advisory, asset management, and custody. To check them out, you can go to diginex.com and equos.io. That is E-Q-U-O-S.io. This is David, and this is your new episode of Baselayer. I have Tegan Klein with me, who is GRT Relations and Business Development at The Graph. Tegan, how are you? I'm doing well, David. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to this one. The Graph is a project we've been watching for a little bit, and definitely some very interesting things that you're doing there in terms of Web3 and the overall development and move from Web1 to 2 to 3, an integral part of that, and the infrastructure uh, layers that is happening right now in front of us in real time. Before we get into The Graph and what you all are doing there, I'd like to focus a little bit on backgrounds and about how people got into this world and you also had a uh, background in traditional finance. You were sales and trading at Barclays, and then you made the switch over. What really inspired the move into digital assets uh, from that world to here? Yeah, so I'm originally from a very small town. Um, I was focused on business and math. I accepted a full scholarship, and I got the full first offer from my college to Bank of America and the Financial Institutions Group in traditional investment banking. And then from there, I moved over to uh, sales and trading at Barclays and moved from New York, was promoted from New York to San Francisco. I was at Barclays for about three years. Um, and then coming from traditional finance, you know, I really enjoyed that work. Um, but I learned about Ethereum when I moved to San Francisco about four years ago. And I really saw the opportunity to kind of disrupt finance um, on Ethereum. And now kind of four years later, here we are. DeFi has really kind of taken off. Um, and, you know, DeFi stands for decentralized finance. For those that don't know, and one word that I use to kind of break it down even further is DeFi is really just credit. Um, and right now, you know, the DeFi hype is very strong. Um, but the reason that, you know, decentralized finance really matters is because it's distributing out the finance and making it more accessible to the individual. So right now, um, in, in traditional centralized finance, um, the power is mainly with you know the corporations and the institutional players, and it's difficult for you know the retail folks to really you know get involved in a proper way. Mm-hmm. Um, but within DeFi, now you can you know you don't have to be a large business or a monopoly. Um, you're able to you know trade and transact within this decentralized finance space. So it's it's really an exciting time. 
Um, but as I kind of got deeper down the, the blockchain rabbit hole, I looked for really permissionless open source and, and decentralized technology. And I can break each of those down. So sure. decentralized, it just really means that there's you know no central point of failure so that applications can kind of build on this solid foundation and they know that that foundation will be there no matter what. So for example, AWS, because it's centralized, if an adversary comes in to shut that down, a lot of applications and developers would be impacted. So with blockchain, there's many nodes. Um, so if one node goes down, you know, not everyone's impacted and the network stays up. Open source, that just means that the code is open and available for anyone to change or use. And that's really important for kind of competition and to eliminate like the duplication of work. And then permissionless just means that it's open for anyone to join without asking for permission, so not, no matter you know your skin color, your bank account, anyone can partake, and you, you know no one can tell you no. Um, so when I left Barclays, those were really the three things that I looked for, and I joined a distributed VPN that was backed by Andreessen and Horowitz and Sequoia, and that VPN was really working to open up the internet to everyone. And I helped launch that company at a four hundred million dollar market cap at the end of last year, um, and then you know having launched an application on Ethereum. I knew kind of firsthand how difficult that, that experience is, not only to kind of build on Ethereum, but also to use the applications that are built on Ethereum. So I really, you know, kind of took a step back um, and looked to the infrastructure layer to make sure that we're providing a foundation for this new economy that we're building. And so I joined the graph and the graph is really making it possible for applications to kind of deliver on the promises that they made. Um, you know, back in 2017, 16, and, and you know, beyond. Um, and now, you know, we're making applications. With the graph, it's easier to make applications that are better than the centralized applications that exist in, in Web2. Right. And so for people that don't understand, so when you use your phone, I've said this a few times on the show, but I'll, I'll kind of hit on it again. When you are using your phone or you're on your laptop and you're running a Google search, you get that response within milliseconds. Usually they tell you how fast it is, but people don't even pay attention to that anymore. They just expect it to be there within you know, light speed. And so what's happening under there is that there are processes and protocols that are happening underneath that search uh, where data is indexed. There is things called handshakes. There's all this stuff, air quotes, uh, technical jargon, jargon there, uh, that's happening when we run searches, when we're looking for things on the internet, et cetera, et cetera, when we're buying something on Amazon. There are things that are happening behind the scenes that you have no idea about. Um, and for years and years and years, a lot of companies have actually uh, taken advantage of that, and they've been able to mine effectively your data and things that have happened there. And so this idea of Web3 has arisen with distributed and decentralized blockchains and technology that says, you know what? No, we can actually emulate a lot of that same process where you have data that's indexed, you have query, you have all the things that happen uh, in traditional web searches and traditional internet, uh, but you can do that vis-a-vis -vis distributed and decentralized networks and blockchains uh, that almost in a sense can empower the user instead of disempowering those centralized power sources. And so this is kind of the grand conversation with Web3. And so the graph network is a core piece of that, a necessary component for delivering decentralized applications with consumer-grade performance. Uh, that's really a very interesting way to say that because that is important. It has to be fast. It has to be durable. It has to be reliable.
The graph is a decentralized protocol for indexing and querying data from blockchains, starting with Ethereum. It makes it possible to query data that is difficult to query directly. So why and what about it is difficult? And if you could, try to provide a few examples. I know on your site and some of the literature you uh, described the CryptoKitties example, you know, for those that are learning about this world, maybe you can enlighten them what that is. But you know, kind of give us a sense of what uh, the difficulties here are and what your what the graph is doing. Absolutely, yeah. So echoing your point, you know, I think we really kind of take for granted the tech that's happening underneath um, in Web two because the the centralized applications are so efficient. And and Web three, it's still early, so we're still building out this decentralized infrastructure. Um, and so with the graph, like you said, it's an indexing and query protocol that's powering many of the applications in both DeFi and Web3 today. So you can think of um, it as kind of like a, an open API, making it easy for Web2 developers to build on blockchains. So you can kind of think of it like what Google does for search, the graph is doing for blockchains. Um, and when we say index, you can kind of think of an index like a database. And when we say query, you can kind of think of that like search. So uh, many applications on both Ethereum and IPFS are, are using the graph. And to date, over 2,000 subgraphs have been deployed for applications like Aragon, Arweave, Balancer, Synthetics, Aave, Gnosis, Numeri, LivePeer, uh, DAOStack, Uniswap, Gods and Chains, and many, many others. Um, and where the graph lives, it's really the middle layer of the stack. So you can think of it like the blockchain at the bottom of the stack, and then you have the graph that lives on top of that to index and query that blockchain. And then the applications are built on the graph. And then the UX and the UI that the user sees is on top of those applications. And so um, these, these applications, what they uh, are building are called subgraphs, which are open APIs that makes it easy for developers to build on blockchains. Um, and so what does that mean? I, you can kind of break it down into like the graph is really building this open data layer on top of blockchains. Um, and right now we are uh, integrated with Ethereum and IPFS, but ultimately we are blockchain agnostic um, and we will likely be spanning, expanding to other layer ones later this year. Um, and the graph is really just making data more accessible for developers and for you know the users of these applications. Right, and so before the graph, teams had to use and operate proprietary index indexing servers. A lot of things that were happening in the early days of blockchains were happening on things that were basically more centralized. You had things that were built on Infura, and you had things that were being used on AWS. Um, and the idea, the grand idea, obviously, is that we're going to move away from that and not have to do that uh, because you want censorship resistance. You want the ability to have self-sovereignty. You want to not necessarily be censored by someone who is running server servers that really doesn't want you to do what you're doing. Um, and so the idea of the internet, and this is not radical, this is not anarchy that I'm talking about. The idea when Tim Berners-Lee gave us the, the World Wide Web in 92 was this. This was supposed to be the way it is. You were supposed to have freedom of information. You were supposed to be able to move around. You were supposed to be able to disperse things. Um, and we were all supposed to learn from it. And then we all of a sudden got spamware and we got all of these things that happen now where we have ransomware we have centralized uh companies that own all of our data and this is not 
the promise of what we were supposed to have in Tim Burnley. I'm speaking for him, obviously. If he wants to come on the show, he's more than welcome. But this is not the grand idea. And so the idea that the graph is obviously kind of doing is, you know, helping to decentralize these things more. And so how difficult is that? Yeah. So, you know, before the graph, teams were really relying on centralized servers that were pretty inefficient and time consuming to keep up and build and also cost costly. So kind of unpacking that, all data on blockchains uh, is open data. And when I say blockchains, I mean like public blockchains, not private blockchains that are databases um, disguising themselves as blockchains. But all blockchain data is really open. Um, and so there's no proprietary hold or IP on that data. But the blockchains, they weren't created for data to be easily indexed or queried. Um, and like efficiently pulled from. And so applications kind of got this narrative that there were really no users. Um, but the reason for that was because the infrastructure just wasn't built yet. And so enter the graph. So the graph really makes it easy to read blockchain data. So for example, if I'm a developer and I want to build an application to show how many DeFi trades were done between let's say like January, 2020 and August 1st, um, that were at like over a hundred million market cap. And if I wanted to search that before, it'd be really difficult. But with the graph, um, you can easily pull that information from blockchains very, very quickly. And so the graph is actually wiping away about 12 months of code for developers and also saving them money. And I think that that's really, you know, one of the reasons why the graph is so beloved by the developer community. Um, and the graph also, you know, uses a language called GraphQL, which was developed by Facebook and adopted by many, you know, centralized companies in the web um, and that allows for web 2 developers to easily you know build in this web 3 space so it's good because we have more brilliant minds kind of coming in and building um, and developers really want a truly you know they want decentralized applications um, and if we're relying on centralized servers then what's really the point of trying to build a, a decentralized blockchain company so with the graph we're making it possible for for truly decentralized applications to spin up that are truly you know serverless uh, with constant uptime uh, and this is important for developers because they want to know that when they build on something that that will stay there and if you know a centralized source is shut down that their application can still live on I realize I didn't give examples in your in your previous question. Do you want me to kind of go into some of the specific examples? Sure. Yeah, that, that would be actually really useful. Yeah, great. So yeah, as blockchains kind of secure trillions of dollars a day, you know, users also will query blockchains, you know, trillions of times a day. And so the graph is really here to help participants in the network capture that value. Um, and in the DeFi space, especially... You know, there's a lot of price feeds and subgraphs. Um, and right now, a subgraph exists for over 100% of the smart contract, or sorry, for 100% of the smart contract platforms in DeFi. Um, and even if the native applications itself hasn't built a subgraph, the community has. So some examples are the Uniswap exchange. It, it's a decentralized application. So every time you go on Uniswap and you trade crypto, you are using uh, the graph subgraph. And then what's very cool is that we also see wallets that can use the Uniswap subgraph um, as well. And so wallets can pull information very seamlessly and easily because of the graph subgraphs. Um, and you kind of compare that to the centralized exchange example. So for example, like if I wanted to pull LinkedIn data over to Crunchbase, 
I couldn't do that because the API is closed. And even though the data from LinkedIn is from the users, LinkedIn owns that data. And so and another example could be like Bloomberg. You know, you can't pull Bloomberg data to any applications that, that you build um, because it's centralized and those APIs are closed. But with blockchain technology in the graph, for the first time, the APIs are open and the data is open. Um, and so that's, that's very exciting. Um, the synthetics exchange is also powered by the graph. Um, if your you, listeners are interested in oracles, um, which is just kind of pulling blockchain data off chain to the real world, uh, we did partner with, with Chainlink. And I know that everyone has a partnership with Chainlink, but the reason this is really exciting is because now all Chainlink oracle data is indexable and queryable via the graph. And we actually saw Melon spin up a subgraph for the chain link price feed data. So it really is permissionless. You create one subgraph and then many others can be created as well. Um, another example that I like is the with NFTs. So NFTs are non-fungible tokens, which is like art and collectibles. But now all NFT data can be easily queried by the graph. And so this is an example of like subgraph composition, which allows subgraphs to be co composed of other subgraphs. So before the NFTs were pretty fragmented, you would have one on one wallet, one on a different wallet, and now you can see all that data in an aggregated way. Um, so the graph is really usable by any application in the blockchain ecosystem, be it DeFi, NFTs, DAOs, or really any use case, you name it, you can kind of build a subgraph for it. Right. And so, you know, discussing this kind of interoperability side of things and obviously the, the subgraph manifest, you know, what are the roles? There are two aspects to this, and I like these names, fishermen and arbitrators. What are they and what do they do in this whole world of subgraphs in this kind of interop type of layer? Yeah, so unfortunately, we actually got rid of those two names, um, but I can break it down. So there are multiple different um, players in this ecosystem. So there are indexers, curators, uh, delegators, and then there's also the users. And so um, this ranges from very technical to not technical at all, these roles. So the indexers, they're the node operators in the ecosystem, and you need to be pretty technical to spin up and run a node. Um, this is crucial for, you know, the distribution and decentralization of the network. Um, and, you know, at launch, this will be very permissionless. We just launched our testnet and we saw over 500 node operators um, uh, register for that testnet. So that was very exciting. Um, and then the curators are the developers in the ecosystem that are signaling on the, the subgraphs that they believe are, the, the indexers should index. And then you have the delegators, which you don't have to be technical for this role. You can just delegate your stake to the indexers, and then you share earnings for the work that you're providing. And then on the other side of this, you have the users and the applications that are then paying for the queries. And all of this, all of those query fees are peer-to-peer. -peer. So the graph protocol isn't extracting a fee from this. Um, it's all peer-to-peer -peer from node operator to, to the curator and the delegator in, in the decentralized network. Got it. And uh, sorry for using old nomenclature. I, everything changes in this world so fast. Um, <laughs> so, what are some of the myths? You know, there we I've seen you guys have written about this in terms of, you know, as I mentioned, Web three is kind of a big narrative here, and you know, the graph and the role in Web three. Some have said that it's not going to happen. Some have said that you know, obviously, you know, we've discussed obviously 
some of the blockchain protocols and aspects of Web3 have been centralized and that it's really not that decentralized and vision and kind of grand utopia that we're all working towards and hoping that things get built. You know, things have been slow. Things have been clunky. Uh, UI, UX has not been great. But again, I think you need to have a time preference here. You have to have an appreciation that this is all happening. Ethereum is, you know, roughly five or so years old right now. And a lot of the things that are happening right now are just happening over the last few years. You know, whereas the web was built over a 30-year period, starting with ARPANET in the late 60s. And so you need to have a bit of a perspective here in terms of time. But what do you think some of the myths are in terms of the delay and I use that in, a, in again, air quote, and I'm, my hands are raised because I don't really, I, I don't agree with that. But what do you think some of the, the myths are in this delay of Web3 development? Yeah, I, I think you hit the, the nail on the head, right? Like the internet from the time the white paper came out to inception, I think was about 25 years. Blockchain, you know, Bitcoin was born about 11 years ago. And so it's very, very early. I think that there are also a lot of things that hurt us uh, in this space, like Silk Road, the narrative that only drug dealers use Bitcoin, um, even though you know Bitcoin is only pseudo-anonymous and all transactions are captured on the blockchain. So even though that, that's not true, um, that narrative wasn't true, it still spun up. I think also you know the Mt. Gox hack really scared folks off. Um, I think it's important for the listeners to know that you know blockchains themselves aren't hacked. It's the centralized players on top of the blockchains that are hacked. Um, and, you know, blockchains were created so you could own your own finances and leaving crypto on a centralized exchange isn't, you know, the smartest thing to do. Um, also, you know, with 2017, we saw, you know, the ICO bubble come in. A lot of scams came. People got burnt um, because they invested in things that didn't have a lot of value. Um, and so that kind of scared people off as well. And, you know, I feel like now with the, the DeFi bubble, you know, we're kind of seeing similar patterns where we're seeing kind of Ponzi schemes disguised as experiments um, where there's not a lot of underlying value except for for yield. Um, And they're stamping this like yield um, DeFi stamp on it, but they're not really providing value. Um, And a lot of, you know, and a lot of that's being marketed by, you know, friends of mine as well, which I don't think is a, a good thing for the space. Um, and I think it's kind of our responsibility as a community to educate the market on these these Ponzi's and, you know, otherwise the regulators will kind of come in and do it for us, which isn't what we want. Um, but I think that, you know, the tech when it first arrived, it also wasn't a great user experience. And now mm-hmm. with the graph, we have applications that are actually better and easier to use than centralized applications. One example that I like is Foundation, which is like an art market. Um, which the, it's it's a very seamless, very quick, um, and really great UX and UI. So it's it's great to see that. You bring up a good point, and something that I've brought up on a few different shows the last week or two is this idea of audited versus non-audited. And as you were alluding to, one of the DeFi darlings, if you will, that lasted for maybe forty-eight hours was unaudited, was non-audited. And so what does that mean? That means that the code uh, was not audited by, you know, kind of outsiders. You didn't have this massive kind of bug uh, bounty. Um, And, you know, they pushed it from testnet, which is, again, you know, for those that don't understand these words, testnet basically sounds just the way it is. It's where you have a testing environment where you're trying to make sure that everything's working. And then you move that to a mainnet, and that's where, you know, kind of the lights go on, everyone starts to be able to use it. 
Um, and so, you know, you had this push from testnet to mainnet and you didn't have an audit. And so what role, you know, do you think that played in some of the issues that we've seen arise in, especially in DeFi over the last few weeks? And, you know, you know, what do you think about, you know, that going forward? Yeah, yeah, I think you're alluding to yams. And yeah, we, we saw a lot of money flow in to yams. Um, it, I don't think a lot of folks lost money. I'm not sure if anyone did. Um, and if it, if it, I think it was at like 500 million at one point. Um, and I think that no more than like 200K of money was lost. Um, and that ultimately collapsed because the code wasn't audited and they found a bug. But now we've seen other things spin up like spaghetti and pasta and all of these coins that don't really provide value other than just earning yield. And the problem is that many sophisticated folks are just yield farming. And so they're not putting money in um, and they're not losing money, but they are selling what they yield to people that are not as sophisticated. And a lot of money has gone into that. And I'm really concerned that this, you know, it's going to grow and grow. And then people will realize that there isn't value there and the bubble will burst. And what we're seeing is a lot of these projects kind of inflated with marketing and with memes um, when there's no real tech. So I think it's really important that, you know, before you put your money into anything, that you really understand the technology that's underlying and you really understand, you know, the mechanisms at play for that token. Couldn't have said it better. Well done. Um the roadmap for the graph going to the rest of the year into 2021, what does that look like? Yeah. So, you know, at the graph, we believe in distribution and decentralization, and we really are inviting anyone from the community to come in and kind of build this open web layer together. You know, to date over, you know, 2000 developers have built over 2000 subgraphs and we're seeing exploding growth with over 500 node operators registering, but we want to continue to build the community. And it's really the job of the, the core team to ensure that the value that the community is providing to the graph protocol is commensurate with, you know, the effort that they're putting in um, and the, you know, the value they're getting out. Um, and so we want to, you know, what we're building is really a public good. It's open data for everyone. You know, the graph didn't just fork someone else's technology and, and market it out. The team has spent over two years building what we've built today. Um, and now we're kind of sharing that work with the indexers and seeing the curators and then the broader ecosystem. Um, but we launched the test net. We will be launching the main net later this year. Um, and that's when we will decentralize the network out fully. And, um, you know, this is the first time that this tech, a lot of this tech is being used in a, a large scale production. Um, so yeah, excited to kind of share that with the world. Uh, and continue to have subgraphs built for a lot of the major DeFi projects um, and, you know, the next wave of innovation. So I want to be very specific. So when you say that this is obviously going from testnet to mainnet and that it will be decentralized, that also means that there will be some sort of a governance token that is used to run that, correct? Um, I don't believe that the graph token has a governance piece in it and of itself. Um, we're still kind of deciding all of that and we'll have updates later this uh, as a kind of approach made that launch. Got it. And that was only because it seems to be the, the you know, we talked about narratives and things that are happening all over the place. That seems to be what everyone's doing these days. But I, I, I you know, again, I want people to understand 
it's not easy moving from testnet to mainnet. It's not easy, you know, putting this thing completely decentralized and distributed. This is not easy work. And so, you know, people are relying on, you know, different mechanisms to bootstrap it and to make it happen. So, you know, there's a lot of different innovation happening there. So I just wanted to check on that. But amazing thoughts and, you know, really great to hear about everything that's happening with the graph. As I said, you know, this notion, this concept, this this vision, if you will, of Web3 is something I'm very passionate about. I think it's something that is needed um, and something that I, you know, I understand a lot of people are very kind of, uh, where is it, where is it, and I want it now, and it's, you know, obviously it's not easy, you know, moving mountains, you know, with code. So looking forward to continuing that. What we'd like to do when we kind of uh, finish up with our guests is get a little bit of sense of them on a personal level, and hopefully you will allow that. Um, would love to hear anything that you've read recently that resonated with you, something that you might have, you know, told your friends and family and colleagues about that was really profound, and any music that you like. Sure. Yeah. So I read, I read a lot. I'm currently reading Never Split the Difference, which is about kind of negotiation skills. Um, I'm also reading, rereading The Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan um, and rereading The Republic by Plato. And then I just finished When Nietzsche Wept. Um, so that's kind of more in the, the philosophy and, and physics side of things. But I just ordered Camilla's book, The Defiant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, if anyone wants a, a a blockchain read, I suggest that one. Um, and then music, I'm, I'm really all over the place. I like anything from like classic rock to oldies um, and then like dancing to EDM and techno. The only music that I really am not a fan of is country. So. <laughs> <laughs> so funny, we had a guest on yesterday who actually said that she likes country. And I said after 200 plus interviews, there's only been about three people that have actually said they like country music. So that, you know, that just speaks to the the volume of people out there in the, you know, digital asset landscape that really like country music. But most of them happen to like EDM, which is comforting to me because that's, you know, part of my cloth. That's where I started doing a lot of things as a DJ back about 15 years ago. Oh, amazing. And anyway, where can people learn more about the graph? And, you know, as I, you know, we always like to, you know, if there's any way that they can be involved, participate, learn more, et cetera, et cetera, where should they all go to learn as much as they can? Yeah, I would suggest our Twitter, which is Graph Protocol, as well as our Discord. Um, it's just the graph.com slash Discord. And then we have a Telegram called Graph Protocol as well. I think those are really the three places to engage with the community. And then if you want to learn more, we have a blog on our website, thegraph.com. Awesome. Tegan Klein from The Graph. This was a great conversation. Again, as I said, I have been very, very, very bullish about Web3, about this move to more distributed, decentralized architecture. And it's not easy. And you need to have companies and projects like The Graph to make that happen. And so a lot of family offices and institutional investors who listen to the show have always asked me, well, where do you actually invest in the nuts and bolts of all this? And obviously, I want you all to do your own research. But you know, these are the types of companies that are part of the nuts and bolts of that. So take a look, read about it. Uh, And Tegan, thank you for coming on. We'll have you on again, uh, hopefully soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. 
Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.